This is CNBC's The Brave Ones podcast with Dominic Chu. You're about to hear from one of the most prolific and adventurous entrepreneurs around who started his first real business as a teenager on a mission. I knew nothing about uh, the record industry, but I'd heard an a tape of a 15-year-old, and I loved it, and I thought somebody must put this out. He didn't have any vocals on it, and I took it to eight record companies, and all of them said they liked it, but they wouldn't put it out without singing on it. It would have ruined the album if they'd they'd had singing on it, so I thought, "Uh, screw it, let's do it, We'll, we'll form a record company. I'm Dominic Chu, and that was Sir Richard Branson. Wondering what the piece of music is that kick-started his career? We'll reveal it later on in the show, but here's a hint. It became the theme of an iconic horror film. You'll discover that and so much more as we dissect and discuss the Richard Branson episode of the CNBC International series, The Brave Ones, with executive producer Betsy Alexander and Mary Hannon, who produced that particular episode. We were in this bunker for, you know, for five hours. I mean, the howling and the, you know, the, the shaking was horrendous. Branson's courage appeared to be front and center as we sat down with him in September of 2017, just after he rode out one of the most powerful Atlantic hurricanes ever to hit land at his home out on Necker Island in the British Virgin Islands. Hurricane Irma began tearing through the Caribbean overnight. Betsy, do you remember constantly looking at Twitter and seeing them in the bunker and wondering what was going to happen? I remember being on Twitter and the Weather Channel and our own alerts that we would get. 185 mile per hour winds, it's moving west-northwest. First of all, we have 70 staff who were staying, so there's no way I, you know, I would have left. Secondly, you know, we have a wonderful community in the British Virgin Islands, I mean, thousands of people who were far greater at risk than, than we were. Thirdly, it's my home. I've loved the BVI since we bought it when I was 27 years old. The powerful storm cut a deadly path of destruction through the region, flattening entire communities. The storm was determined to be, you know, a terrible, terrible hurricane, one of the worst. I mean, as as caring people, we wanted to make sure he was okay and all the people on the island with him were okay. But uh, for selfish reasons, we were also hoping that he would actually make it up to New York for the interview. The particular hurricane that hit us on Necker was the most powerful hurricane in history. I mean, it it was Category 7 if if there was such a thing as a Category 7, over 200 miles an hour. And the havoc it reached was ghastly. Uh, There was little left of Mecca, there was little left of the British Virgin Islands. The whole country was decimated. I mean, it's amazing that he actually made it through that and, and then made it up to the interview at all. I mean, was he was he visibly or audibly shaken at all when you guys saw him after in the aftermath of this big storm? He seemed pretty calm. Um, and I was actually amazed that he was almost producing the episode himself because he came in with a coffee cup. And I don't know whether it was coffee or tea, um, but, you know, strode into the interview, was drinking that, realized he'd been drinking it during the first part of the interview, was about to put it down and then stopped himself and said, oh, no, for continuity, I, I better make sure that I keep the, the coffee cup. So his mind was Spoken really like always Spoken like a true working. producer, by the way. <laughs> he came in to do the interview. I mean, he'd made a promise, which was, would have been totally fine if he, if he canceled. I mean, under those circumstances, of course. But he also came to New York for another purpose. Right, Mary? Well, it was climate week in New York. President Trump had pulled out of the the Paris, or was talking about pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, and, you know, Richard Branson has 
lots of different endeavors that that he's involved in and the environment and climate change is huge in his mind. So despite the fact that there was a third hurricane, right, that was headed towards BVI, he felt that he had to come up uh, to make sure that his voice was heard on that issue. Um, and also, I think you're right, Betsy, to, you know, fulfill his promise to us that that he do this interview, because I, I think we'd actually talked about a couple of different times, and this was the one we had to make work. I mean, he's always been really involved in various global issues from the time he was a kid, pretty much. When I was about 14, the Vietnamese war started, and it was a very unjust war. Most wars are unjust, but this was a, a war perpetuated by, I'm afraid, the West against, um, against Vietnam. So we decided to start a magazine to campaign against it. And it was the 60s, people, the young people wanted a voice and they were willing to speak out on issues. And it was an exciting time. I mean, let's talk about, I mean, his career, because throughout it, Richard Branson, Sir Richard Branson, has been involved in a lot of very big picture, very big global type issues, macro issues out there. Uh, I mean, his first real business venture was a magazine simply called Student Magazine. One of his biggest lessons was understanding the power of pitting rivals against each other. I mean, I would ring up and I would just say, you know, I'm, I'm launching the only magazine that's going to enable you Coca-Cola to get to young people or you Pepsi to get to young people or you National Westminster Bank to get to young people. I soon learned the art that if, you know, if Pepsi had already said, you know, maybe hinted that they might come in as long as if I let Coke know that Pepsi would definitely in, that Coke would then jump in. And, and my education started on, on the phone, literally having to sell advertising because I knew that I couldn't launch the magazine until I had £4,000 worth of advertising. This was a long time ago in the days before cell phones, so he was doing most of his managerial work from a phone booth. Remember those? <laughs> and for, right, for kids these days who don't necessarily know. Yeah, you dropped coins in them, right? And then you dialed numbers? Yes. They were on the street, those boxes, <laughs> and they had phones, yes, and you had to have money in order to, to make your phone call and talk to the operator. Yes. You had to get the operator involved sometimes. Fortunately, I learned quite early on that um, I think what had happened was I, I put money in and didn't get through. So I rang up the operator and said, I'll just put some money in. So the operator said, oh, no problem, we'll put you through. So uh, instead, of, instead of putting the money in, I just rang up the operator. And, and she became, the operator became, became my secretary. And hello, I have Mr. Branson for you. <laughs> and, and that'll go straight through to Coca-Cola or Pepsi without paying. And the only problem, of course, was when other kids uh, wanted to use the phone box to ring mum or dad, and, and they were starting to queue outside. For someone who wasn't a good student, he was one of the smartest young entrepreneurs Street I've ever smarts, heard of. Street yeah. for sure. Brilliant, but uh, quite the troublemaker. I guess eventually, because of all of his other activities, school finally gave him a choice between going to school and being an entrepreneur. The headmaster called me in one day and said, you know, either you leave school and run the magazine or you stop running the magazine and you stay at school. Well, he was dyslexic, so he, he actually didn't do well in school. And I think that also was sort of what had his mind spinning in so many other directions. Um, so, yeah, when the schoolmaster eventually called him in and said, you know, you need to either crack down and do this or go run student magazine, you can't really do both. So I said... Thank you for that choice. I'm off to run the magazine. He also, his entire life, has liked an adventure, and that was an adventure. I think he sort of told the schoolmaster that he had made up his own mind, but he still had to go tell his dad that this was what he wanted to do. And 
I, I think it took his father a little convincing. I remember walking around the garden with my dad. The first time I walked around, he tried to persuade me out of it, as you know, as I think he felt it was his duty as a dad to do. Then the second time round, he said, "Look, if you know, if you if you've really made up your mind on reflection." You know, when I left um, college at 22, I had no idea what I wanted to do. You're 15, you know what you want to do. So, you know, give it a go. And if it doesn't succeed, we'll try to get you an education again. And um, I could have given him the biggest, biggest kiss ever for his understanding. And of course, you know, by leaving school, I had the best education imaginable. He comes from a very close family. Yeah, it's got to be a fairly tight dynamic. He's carried that on. He's, he has a very close family now with his children and grandchildren. But he, he had a great example set for him by both of his parents. So sure. dad sort of stuck up for him, um, but mom really was uh, the impetus for adventure. And she wanted every single one of her kids to stick up for themselves and to really take, you know, steps that other people wouldn't because it would, it would improve their character um, and drive them to become better people. So dad gave him life lessons and mom made him a risk taker? My mom is a very adventurous person. Uh, she very much felt that she wanted us to stand on our own two feet and not to uh, you know, be moddy coddled, as she would call it. So, you know, we weren't allowed to watch television when we were children. We, 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 we had to get out and, uh, and do things and um, climb trees and rescue cats and things like that. And there was the moment when I was four that we were going to Granny's house in Devon and about three miles before we got there, she, I think I must have been misbehaving or something in the back of it, she just pushed me out of the car and said, uh, right, you make your own way there. And, you know, she would, she, would, she would put us on a bike and make us ride 200 miles. And she was, you know, I think she felt that if we were going to grow up into brave people, she had to also take a risk on a risk with us. And if anything had happened today, she would have been arrested. Um, in in those days, I think she might have got away with it. You know, I think we we've, we've got a lot to thank her for. Can you imagine kicking your kid out of the car and telling them to make their own way home <laughs> when they're like five no. years old? <laughs> uh, different time, different place. Um, and and all through his um, younger years, he had a friend named. Uh, Nick Powell, who was his, you know, partner in fun crime, but also became his business partner in most of his future businesses. Right from a very early age, he was classic schoolboy adventurer and would go places where others would fear to tread. I think they started their first business venture at 10. I'm not sure when exactly they met. Very young. Yeah. You start your first <laughs> business venture with a partner at 10 years old. But they started off getting in, in trouble together, you know, doing kid, doing things that uh, that boys tend to do, especially playing in traffic, daring each other to go down a hill and crashing into a stream. Uh, but then they did, right? They did end up starting these businesses. At age 10, myself and uh, Richard, but really Richard was trying to make extra money uh, to increase his pocket money more than anything else. And he kept on coming up with ideas and I think was very much encouraged, especially by his mother, to do that and hard work by his father. And we started with, with breeding budgerigars and uh, we'd heard that they bred at a huge pace. And so we built a cage and we bought the budgerigars and indeed they did breed, but we had to go away to school at that time. 
And when we came back, the cat, so to speak, had got them. So it wasn't a hugely successful venture, from what I remember. So then we tried Christmas trees, because, you know, for every foot a Christmas tree grows, you can get a pound a foot. We planted a lot of Christmas trees, and, they, and the rabbits got in and ate them all. So our first two business ventures weren't very successful. Oh, OK, so Mary, how did Richard Branson go from these lemonade stand ideas to some real business ventures? So... Nick and Richard were friends and business partners, you know, throughout their uh, teen years. One of the first big tests that they had at problem solving came when they had come up with a mail order record business. So before streaming, obviously, you know, we had those albums that you would put on a record player or phonograph. And they needed a name for the business, though, because this was a real business. So it wasn't, you know, just selling something here and there. Um and they had a brainstorming session that, that I think actually might be one of the ultimate <laughs> brainstorming sessions of all time. Well, it certainly led to one of the most iconic brand names. I was sitting in a basement with a bunch of girls. Um, we were all about 15, 16 years old. We were trying to think of a name for a record mail order company. And then one of the girls said, we're all virgins. Let's, why don't you call it virgin? And you're, you're inexperienced at business too, Richard. So... Virgin sounded good, so we went with Virgin. So it was a great name, but they had to fight for it and prove that it wasn't too risque back in the day. So they were a little naive, I would say, um, in thinking that they could just pick any name and that everybody would agree with it. But And they were, you know, naive in many different ways with business. But because Branson wanted to just sort of always go full speed ahead, he would figure things out along the way. Most of the time it worked out, but... There was a time at the very beginning that it almost stopped the business cold. So what happened was we had an order for records from Belgium. We were very excited, our first export order for music. And um, we drove down, we crossed to France to drive to Belgium. The authorities said, you don't have a carnet, and therefore you're going to have to go back to England, which was a piece of paper to prove that we weren't going to leave them in France. Drove back to England and we suddenly thought, well, the authorities will assume that we've exported them. We could sell them in England and we won't have to pay the 35% tax. And um, foolishly, we did that. And then we did it again. And we were caught uh, by uh, Customs and Excise, who are the police of collecting tax. And it almost put, it out, put us out of business. Uh, but in a funny kind of way, I think it also spurred us on to be more businesslike because when we were caught, we had to obviously make a deal with customs and excise over which we had to repay a certain amount of money over three years. So that means we needed to generate or make that money over three years, or otherwise we were in deep trouble. So in a funny kind of way, that spurred us to become more organized and to build a business so that we could repay the money. And, and the, the settlement had been guaranteed by Richard's parents, so there was also a personal reason to, to make sure that we made enough money to be able to, to pay off the fine and the, and the amount. Okay, so, you know, just a little pressure having to pay back mom and dad. Uh, Mary, how exactly did they dig out from under all of that debt? Well, they managed to persevere because, you know, Richard Branson knows how to make things work one way or the other, and they end up building a recording studio. And it's around this time that the young man that we were talking about at the beginning with the great music but no vocals enters into their world. This young lad who made the record was called Mike Oldfield and 
um, and the album was called Tubular Bells. We had sort of protected ourselves to, to an extent by recording it in our own studios, um, having our, you know, doing everything on a very low cost basis so that if it didn't work, you know, we, we, would, we would be fine. I mean, I organized a Queen Elizabeth Hall concert for him and on the way he just said, look, Richard, you know, I can't do it. And I had Mick Taylor there. I had Stevie Winwood from Traffic, um, uh, all of Henry Cow. Anyway, some wonderful musicians waiting on stage. And I got an old beaten up car, which had cost next to nothing, but it was actually a Bentley, and um, which I knew he loved. So I pulled into the side and I just said to him, look, Mike, I, I know that you've got psychologically, you just can't do it, but do you think you could overcome your psychological problems if I gave you the keys to this car? And I sort of could see his mind whirling and he went, yeah, I think I'm, I'm feeling better. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he did the concert, BBC recorded it, uh, and the album went, uh, went to number one. All right, I mean, it's now an iconic piece of music, but how did we go from that music and Queen Elizabeth Hall, uh, Betsy, to horror movie, theme music? So some producers were looking for a different sound to distinguish what their movie was going to actually sound like. And they heard what this musician was calling tubular bells. And if you're not familiar with that, um, you might know it better as that eerie, haunting theme music for The Exorcist. Of course. Split pea soup, spinning heads. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's one of those pieces of music you hear the first note or the first two notes. Just and you like know. Jaws. I can you name that know. tune in. I yes. can name that tune in two bars, three <laughs> bars maybe. You immediately feel like the, you know, the creepiness of The Exorcist. And that was the beginning of Virgin. And, you know, he went on to work with incredible names. Rolling Stones, Frank Zappa, Paul McCartney. It was the most successful independent record label in the world. Virgin Records was was huge, enormous. So like he is wont to do, he started to get antsy and then look for another business. Um, And the idea for the next business sort of falls on his lap. While on vacation. Yeah, I was in uh, Puerto Rico, had a lovely lady waiting for me in the British Virgin Islands. I'd been away for three weeks and the American Airlines said that that they were gonna cancel the flight. We had to come back the next morning because they didn't have enough passengers. And I was livid because um, uh, I hadn't seen him for three weeks. So I went to the back of the airport. I hired a plane, you know, gave them my credit card, hoped, hoped, that, hoped it wouldn't bounce. Borrowed a blackboard, wrote as a joke, Virgin Airlines one way, uh, $39 to, to the Virgin Islands, went out to all the people got bumped, and I filled up my first plane. And um, we arrived in the BVI. Somebody said, sharpen up the service a bit and you could be in the airline business. And the next day I rang up Boeing and said, um, just had a bad experience and I'm thinking of, um, starting an airline called Virgin. And um, do you have any secondhand 747s for sale? And this wonderful guy called RJ Wilson said, I'll, I'll come and see you. What sort of business do you do? I said, I'm in the record business. He said, um, did you say your company was called Virgin? I said, yes. He said, um, well, doesn't sound very appropriate for an airline. People will think your airline won't go the whole way. Anyway, <laughs> so. And he wasn't the only one doubting Branson at that point. Will Whitehorn, who would go on to become his right-hand man for decades, got an earful when he wanted to join the company. A lot of my friends thought, 
my God, well, why are you going to work there? He's, that's the guy that's just started the airline. It's never going to work. All he's got is a record company. I think the thing that um, put Virgin on the map um, was when we bought one secondhand 747. We took on uh, British Airways, Pan Am, TWA with their hundreds of planes. It was a genuinely disruptive thing to do. The airline industry was totally regulated in the 1980s and people just didn't start airlines because the big monopolistic US national carriers and European state-owned carriers you know, had normally destroyed any opposition. And his board was not happy with him that you know, he's got this successful record business with all these big names, and now he's going to go into a completely different industry he knows nothing about. I mean, he's been a disruptor his whole entire life. Sure. People who ran the record company were distraught. Why was I going to put this very successful record company at risk and go into the airline business? Every day there were things happening that were putting at risk what was already being done. So all of the time, you sort of feel the whole thing could collapse like a pack of cards. Richard was a rare breed in a world that had been dominated by socialist politics and then dominated by Thatcherism in the early part of it. He was an entrepreneur that had come through in the 70s, and there weren't many of them around. But also he had this, he has this great skill where he does know how to draw attention to his companies. Um, and often it is through some very uh, crazy publicity stunts. I mean, and this is what we've come to kind of know Sir Richard Branson for, being able to be over the top enough to where you just call all kinds of attention to something that you're doing. And it wasn't just the name, it was a lot of the antics that went along with it, right? What I tried to do is, if I'm launching a new business, is um, make people smile, um, uh, have, you know, make sure that it's a, a fun event, make sure that we get on the front page of the papers, not a little anecdote on the back of the papers. By and large, it's worked. Sometimes it's gone horribly wrong. You know, initially, to try to put our little airline on the map, we decided to try to break, you know, bring the Blue Ribbon Cup um, back from America to England by uh, seeing if we could be the fastest boat across the Atlantic. Well, we sank about uh, two-thirds of the way across. We, we either hit something or it decided it, it, it had had enough and it broke up. Got rescued by a banana boat. And while I was being picked up by the banana boat, my son, um, uh, my, my wife gave birth to Sam, my son. And then we went again the next year and we were successful. Um, and I think some of these sort of adventure things have helped give Virgin that sort of exciting, uh, you know, exciting image, which, which is, you know, really sort of sets it apart from someone like British Airways or other people that we compete with. And he's still doing that stuff today. I mean, when we were shooting B-roll with him um, in, in the months before the hurricane and in our interview, he was up to do um, some promotional event um, and ended up at the Empire State Building. Right. It was for the Formula E racing. So that's electric vehicles. Right. Right. Uh, he had a team that was racing um, in Brooklyn. And in order to promote it, they had one of the Virgin team cars outside of the Empire State Building. And Branson was all dressed up in the outfit. And they got him in and out of the car somehow because those things are teeny. And then he went in and lit the Empire State Building with the colors of the Virgin Team Racing. And it was horrible weather. 
I guess horrible weather was following him around that fall uh, because he probably would have driven up in the car. But in that case, there was no way to do it. It was I think it was pelting. Well, and they were joking that if any of the other drivers couldn't do it, he was going to be the backup driver. (laughs) But that was, you know, nothing if you compare it to some of his earlier stunts. He wasn't one of these sort of backseat adventurers who would simply fund things because he thought having his personality at the front of it was actually good for the business, and it was. You know, it's difficult when you have children and you want to push the limits. Are you being selfish? You know, is it the right, you know, should you just, you know, not do anything like that while, 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 until the children have grown up? I think now my kids understand, you know, why I did it. They've got young kids and they're pushing the limits. Um, and and, I, and I, I personally think they're right in, in doing that. I think, you, you know, you do only live once and um, if you're capable of doing some extraordinary things, you know, you, you should get out and try to do them. Um, and hopefully their kids will, you know, will do the same one day. If it hadn't worked out, you know, obviously I would have regretted it. Uh, and my wife would have, uh, wouldn't have come to my funeral, as she's famously said. But all in all, I, you know, I think um, all of us, the life, life has been richer for, by, by saying yes rather than saying no. That's a big key, especially when you're a risk taker. Say yes, because there's going to be so many times when you're posed with questions or or options or or things that are going to be very easy to say no to. But oftentimes, saying yes opens up a lot of doors, right? Right. And that's kind of what Sir Richard Branson's all about, saying yes. The dream of civilians soaring into space as paying passengers could be on hold tonight after the deadly crash of a Virgin Galactic space plane. It was a dreadful day. You know, I was not sure whether, you know, whether, whether we would continue. Um, the, uh, it was only when I um, got to the Mojave Desert and um, spent time with the 600 engineers, when I talked to um, the, the sort of, many of the 700 astronauts who'd signed up, uh, when I found out that it wasn't a technical problem, it was it, it had been a man man made problem. You know that we decided to press on. I mean, they just went public not very long ago mm-hmm. through a, through a very interesting process on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, he's now in business with Chamath Palihapitiya, uh, a very big social entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. That's the partner that he's with now in Virgin Galactic. Right? It's a public vehicle. It could have very easily been derailed because of this crash. The path of least resistance, arguably, in that situation is to shut things down, right? Especially with an ambitious plan involving spacecraft. It could be very easy to just say, okay, maybe it's a little bit too ambitious. Let's just stop it. But that's not his style. Yeah, but to a person, everyone in his company didn't want that to happen. And he listened to them. And then he continued doing other ventures. Yeah, he uh, he didn't stop with that industry. Now he's doing hotels, and then um, in 2020 he's launching the first uh, Virgin Voyages cruises, uh, another industry he hasn't gotten into before. I think he he enters into businesses where he believes he can make a difference and make improvements from what is the status quo. Uh, He's also involved in a a bunch of environmental and human rights organizations. And actually, he's been doing that from the very beginning, from the days in Student Magazine. He always had a philanthropic side. It's almost like you have to be hardwired, right? It's got to be almost like part of your DNA. I suppose I've now become a bit of a serial uh, philanthropist, only because it's difficult. You know, we all know how difficult it is to say no to 
um, to 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 causes. So, you know, if the Virgin Islands are hit by a hurricane, you can't turn 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 your head. Um, if uh, if you feel that you can help resolve conflicts in the world by creating an organization with Nelson Mandela called the Elders, uh, you know, you, you've got to do it. Uh, if, if you're worried about the oceans, the species in the oceans, maybe you should create the Oceanic Elders. Um, uh, if you want to try to rally business leaders to try to make sure businesses are, um, are, are more caring and, and can speak out on issues, then you, then you form the B team. Uh, if you're worried about global warming, then you, the, you, you form the Earth Prize and the Carbon War Room and, in order to try to get out there and tackle these issues. So, you know, so the trouble is there's, there's, there's so many, uh, you know, if you, if you feel that the governments are not, uh, are not getting the drug issue right, you, you, you help form the Global Drug Commission to try to, uh, you know, to change government policy. Um, it's, made, it's made my life far more interesting getting involved in all these things. And, um, and hopefully, you know, they're all playing their part and trying to make a difference in their in their particular areas. I mean, there's irons in the fire, and then there's like a lot of irons in the fire. This is the business side of things. We talked about all the ventures, but then you have that same mentality. The serial. I mean, he said it. Serial entrepreneur morphs into serial philanthropist by the time this is done. You name the cause, and he's in the mix trying to figure something out. Well, I suppose I've stuck my neck out a lot of times. <laughs> Love to sort of tilt at um, very big companies um, and see if we can shake them up and keep them honest and uh, come in with products that are um, a lot better than, than, than they're offering. Yeah, you have to be a little bit brave and maybe even foolish uh, to do that. And um, fortunately, we've sort of got away with it more often uh, than, than we haven't. And he's showing no signs of stopping. So our thanks to Betsy and Mary, the both of you guys. You can find full TV episodes of The Brave Ones on CNBC International's YouTube channel. And if you like this episode, please subscribe to The Brave Ones podcast on whatever podcast platform you choose. I'm Dominic Chu. We'll see you on the next episode of The Brave Ones.